Hey, dear listeners, I want to hear about what you think about the show, what works and what doesn't, and what can be improved. So, if you have a few minutes, fill out the SRB Podcast listener survey at srbpodcast.org. I want to know who's listening, why, and what you think is important to making the show the best it can be. So take a few minutes and fill out that survey. Thanks for your time. Now on with the show. Hello, and welcome to the SRB Podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh, and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash blog, or to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. This week's podcast, Underground Entrepreneurs in the Soviet Union, is the fourth in Reese's Spring series, Socialism, Past, Present, and Future. In this series, we've been exploring the experience of really existing socialism, grassroots socialist and communist movements, socialist-inspired economic development and state building, and visions of the socialist future from a global perspective. Shortages, bottlenecks, and over-centralization in the Soviet economy made the distribution of goods uneven, limited, and, to some extent, non-existent. But it would be a mistake to see the Soviet economy as only a planned, top-down system. Interwoven within it were shadow economies with illegal schemes that the innovative and corrupt exploited. What do these shadow economies say about Soviet everyday life, informal networks, and corruption? And how did their proliferation reflect and shape the realities of Soviet socialism? I talked to James Heitzen about the culture, practices, and mores of underground entrepreneurs in the Soviet Union from the 1960s to the 1980s. James Heitzen is a professor of modern Russian history and director of the Holly Bush Institute at Rowan University. He's the author of two books, Inventing a Soviet Countryside, State Power and the Transformation of Rural Russia, 1917 to 1929, and The Art of the Bribe, Corruption under Stalin, 1943 to 1953. His new project is a social history of underground entrepreneurs in black markets in the Soviet 1950s to the 1980s. Here's James Heitzen. So I thought we'd start uh, our discussion by just just having you introduce yourself. Give us your origin story and how you got interested in, in Soviet history. Well, I was born in Minneapolis. I lived in Minneapolis uh, during my childhood, the formative years. This was sort of the height of the Cold War. So the Soviet Union was on everybody's mind, mostly as an an enemy and something to be afraid of. Uh, I was born the year of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And um, uh, I decided to go to, I went to a big public school in Minneapolis, and I decided to go to um, a small private college out in Connecticut, <clears throat> called Trinity College mm-hmm. in Hartford. And I was really lucky that at that college, there were some fantastic teachers of Russian history and Russian language, Sam Kassow and Jay West and some others. And we, they had a really strong Russian studies program like University of Pittsburgh does. And they turned me on to Russian history um, at a time when I really had no interest in it. I had no idea going into college I would be know, pursue this, this field. Um, the sort of capstone of that experience was in the 
fall of 1983, I went to Moscow and spent a semester there at the Pushkin Institute. And that, that was uh, life-changing for me. Um, it was really just incredibly fascinating every day to see this other civilization, which I started to get to know, I think, but I wasn't there long enough really to fully immerse myself. But I started to notice a lot of things that I later started to study, like um, bureaucratic politics and cultures of informality and even black markets. And um, I came back to the States. I went to graduate school at the University of Pennsylvania. I studied with uh, Moshe Levine. And then I, um, I did my dissertation work in Moscow in 1991 and 92 when the country was falling apart. So right. the push happened in August. I got there in September. And you know, it was this fascinating experience of living through a revolution, a very a kind of a slow motion revolution, a nonviolent revolution, but a revolution nevertheless. Mm -hmm. uh, the state basically disintegrated while I was there, and um, therefore a lot of things that had been subterranean and repressed and informal became, you know, official and present. You know, the black market was basically legalized, and that was the that was the beginning of the of the Russian post-Soviet market system. Um, but you didn't switch your topic. No, I should have. Uh, no, it was too late to really finish switch my topic. So uh, I was working on agricultural politics and bureaucratic politics and sort of um, political culture in the early Soviet period. Um, and that was it was useful to be in Russia at that time because, of course, that was a revolutionary period as well. So I was able to sort of witness this this variety on a revolution up close and personal. I got mugged in Moscow in the in 1992, and that uh, and then I got shaken down by the police, and that really was the origins of my book on bribery, oh, okay. on the culture of bribery, because I, I was really fascinated by how casually they. <laughs> I just sort of gave me cookies and asked for a bribe, the policeman. And there was no state to speak of at that time. The state was just sort of individuals in positions of power like police. And he had his office in the back of McDonald's. And we had a lovely conversation. But um, that made me really interested in, um, in, first of all, in crime and everyday life, which is the topic of my current project and was the topic of the art of the bribe but also how law and ideology and culture intersect in unexpected ways in Soviet history. I, I find it every time I, I interview somebody, I, I've gotten into the habit of asking people because it's really fascinating to me how one's personal experience tends to be the, the origins of various scholarly topics. And yes. clearly this is what brought you to write The Art of the Bribe and then your new, your new project. Would you say so? Or? I would say so. A lot. I mean, I think, and I think you're absolutely right. And partly it's because every day, because our own personal experience gives us, gives us the illusion that we understand something and we may or may not really understand it, but it's a first step. It's an entree into something that interests us and that we've experienced personally. And then hopefully with reading and with archival work, you will shade and fill out your own, you know, your own personal perceptions and um, take a more so-called objective position and be able to take an academic approach and explain the whatever particular phenomenon interested you. But it definitely is the, the case in, uh, definitely was the case for me. Now, what what's really surprising surprises me about your, your new project um, is, uh, which is on the Soviet second economy or the black market, uh, however you want to term it, term it. But what surprises me is how little that has been done on it since the 1990s. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think your study might be the first kind of sustained study, a deep study of the practices of it. Um, why do you think it's gotten so little interest? Yeah, I think that there, there are a few reasons. Um, one is that the, the approaches in the 1970s and 1980s by Western scholars towards the Soviet black market were not really... Mm, they weren't all that fascinating, really, in their conclusions for for humanists. So, the economists wanted to study. Um, they wanted to quantify the Soviet 
black market. They wanted to quantify what Gregory Grossman called the second economy. He was the leading specialist uh, in the, you know, in the in the Soviet underground economy. He called it the second economy. I call it the shadow economy. Um, the Soviet vernacular is the left economy. But um, he, what he wanted to do was he was he was working for um, he was getting funding from government agencies that were curious about what is the Soviet economy really. How can we quantify how much how much how much economic activity is illegal? It's underground, and it was very hard to do. He was brilliant. He did a fantastic job. He had a whole team that he um, brought together from Duke and Berkeley, and you know it was quite substantive. It was as very a substantive. Of the economy. And they, yeah, he they estimated something like fifteen percent of GNP was underground, but you know it's based on. The statistics obviously weren't published. The Soviet Union didn't even have a word for the black market. So they didn't even have a word for corruption. The word corruptia was only applied to bourgeois societies. Soviet Union didn't have corruptia. That's a bourgeois phenomenon. Uh, they used the word mostly hishenia, which means theft of state property, so embezzlement, or speculatia, which means reselling, buying things, and selling them for a profit. They didn't even really have a word for selling for a profit. They used the term speculatia, which is a, a term to describe a crime. So the word second economy, shadow economy, these weren't used. The word shadow economy was only used in the time of perestroika, in the mid to late 80s, to describe this phenomenon. So it's this, it's this huge phenomenon that doesn't have language to describe but it. But they were aware of it. I mean, they were worried about it. They're aware of it. Yes, that's right. They're aware of it and they're worried about it. And they um, they take increasingly desperate steps to stem it. Uh, for example, um, introducing the death penalty for the most egregious cases of uh, theft of state property and bribery in 1961 and 1962. You know, uh, a sign of desperation, really not a sign of strength. How do you understand entrepreneur? In entrepreneurship, yeah, right. Because you know, when we think in our popular imagination of the Soviet Union, we don't really think of there being entrepreneurs. But this is, you know, a social phenomenon, but also an analytical category of sorts. Yes. So, how do you understand it? Right. I mean, again, to to um, sort of finish with a thought that was started earlier that that I didn't finish um, uh, in the in the '70s and '80s, people used a couple of types of ways of thinking about the Soviet black market or illegal economy. One was this um, trying to quantify it. The second was thinking of the black markets as being purely functional. In other words, you had to have black markets because the Soviet economy was so bad at producing consumer goods and distributing them that you have these individual black marketeers who make things, sell them. You can't find them in the stores, so you have these people who would, who would um, illegally do that. And the idea is that they existed as a kind of, the kind of the wheel greasing mechanism. But that's as far as that analysis went. A third way of thinking about the black markets was to say that they were, it's basically a study of crime. So you have these immoral people who are criminals and the Soviet Union is sort of a criminal society and they're just a representation of you know, of, of the criminal nature of the Soviet Union, that even, you know, just selling a, a scarf or something in the met, outside of the metro, that's a crime, this is terrible. So I find these to be very unproductive ways of thinking about what was actually happen, what was actually happening. And as I looked more deeply into the archival material, both criminal records, trial records, and some interview sources that I have, what really began to strike me was how creative many of these people were. They were, these were not just sort of back alley criminals. They were often people with, with vision, with a plan, with organizational skills, with a great degree of sophistication in the operations that they put together, many of which involved hundreds of people and earned millions of rubles. These uh, operations often stretched across vast geographic territories. These were not just sort of grandmothers, you know, selling milk in the market 
or teenagers who wanted to buy your jeans and sell your jeans, as anybody who ever spent five seconds in the Soviet Union uh, experienced, there's this whole or class of people called farsovchiki or black marketeers who would approach you and want to change money with you or buy your clothing. I remember a guy coming up to me the first time he was in the Soviet Union, and he just said, I will buy your jeans now. <laughs> and I said, no, because then I won't have any pants. So that's not going to work. But this is the type of small-scale petty operations that we normally think of. But as I looked at the uh, records of from the 60s and 70s, you see that these operations are often very, very sophisticated. And I, the term entrepreneur was one that I thought really, fat, really fit. Um, normally, when people study the Soviet economy, they study it as this big, inefficient, irrational mess. And I'm not saying that that's not true, but what people normally looked at was like, oh, you couldn't produce anything, so you had to falsify your numbers. So people would study fraud. Scholars would study how do people, how did managers fake their statistics to make it look like they'd fulfilled the plan? So what I came, what I sort of came to the conclusion was that rather than studying people who, who sort of had to fake their poor production, I wanted to study these people who were hiding their amazing production. And they had to hide this production from the authorities to look at, instead of looking at oh, a big failed planned economy, to look at hundreds and thousands of small shadow economies that were in fact very successful. And to, to ask what this tells us about Soviet, Soviet society, the Soviet economy, and political life. How do you place your work next to somebody like Ledineva who's dealing with blot and, and corruption? Because one of her arguments actually is that corruption even in the the current you know current contemporary Russia is a way to grease the wheels. It's actually a way for the system to work. It's not antithetical to the system. It actually makes the system function better. Um, so, how do you regard her work? Yeah, I mean, her work is very important for for me. My books are not about blot. Um, the first book was on bribery, and this book is on you know, sort of black markets and underground economies. Blot is an important informal mechanism in any kind of social activity in, in Russia uh, or in the Soviet Union. Um, but blot is not what I'm studying. Blot, first of all, is not illegal. Blot is a kind of reciprocal friendship, favors reciprocally done for one another without expectation of immediate um, retribution or reci re uh, reciprocation, I should say. Um, so blot does not involve money. Blot does not involve profit. Blot um, is is a kind of long-term relationship. Bribery always involves money or valuables exchanged with expectation of immediate results. It's also illegal, so it's riskier. Um, I I describe like something that runs through both of my books is that everything that these people are doing is very very risky. This is part of the entrepreneurism. So I'm writing about entrepreneurs, not in a capitalist society where entrepreneurialism is encouraged. It's encouraged by law. It's encouraged by institutions. It's encouraged by, um, by taxation policy, fiscal policy. You're allowed to advertise. You're allowed to collaborate with other capitalist institutions. You're allowed to, um, you know, it's culturally encouraged. The, the myth of the entrepreneur is very important in capitalist societies. Uh, the self-made man. In the Soviet Union, this is all done, everything that they do is against the law, and they have to watch out, and they have to cover themselves. So um, so that's not blot, but blot is really important. Legionova's work is, is important to me, um, but um, I mean, what you'll see is that, for example, let's say you need to bribe a policeman, then you might ask somebody to help you identify who would be more open to a bribe. So that's a kind of blot mediating bribery, which is something that Lejeuneva talks about. I mean, she's very good about distinguishing bet between the two. Now, what is the relationship then between this shadow economy and the Soviet economy in general? Because 
you know, you're not looking at it as a form of resistance. You're not you're not looking at it as it, it's it's not something that's completely even separate from the the no, the regular economy. In fact, it's highly reliant on the bureaucrats, this ch supply chains, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. So how do you understand their relationship? Yeah, so um, usually we think of black markets as being separate from and outside of the regular command economy, the planned economy, the so-called official economy, which of course is a, is a sort of problematic term, but it's the best term that we have at the moment. So if you think about the... the um, uh, I know that in my experience, when I was in the Soviet Union, I thought of black markets as being um, as existing outside of the plan, right? So that you've got a planned economy, and then you have these little peripheral agents who float around outside, who are working outside the law, outside the official structures. What I found from studying the biggest schemes in Soviet history is that these schemes typically were woven inside the, the structures, the mechanisms of the command economy. So they uh, often, um, the, they were uh, producing goods in the same factories as the legally produced stuff, but they were producing it illegally. They were using the retail chain. They were putting their goods straight into the official retail chain. They were getting their raw materials from the official suppliers. This, these weren't um, operations that were off in the, you know, often in some completely separate geographic location. Rather, the largest operations penetrated and interpenetrated and interwove themselves in the planned economy. Um, and to me, that's fascinating. And it's pretty brilliant as well. Now, as you mentioned, there is these two laws that are Khrushchev decrees in 1961 and 1962 because the authorities are incredibly concerned about, you know, the percent, the number, the, the amount of, of corruption, how many bureaucrats are involved in this, the, the amount of, you know, theft of socialist property. Um, talk about it. And, and these laws put really strict, as you said, penalties for this, including capital punishment for some of the more egregious uh, crimes. Mm -hmm. um, what is the significance of these laws? What did they say to you? You said a bit about uh, them being a kind of desperation. Mm -hmm. So uh, talk about that a bit more. Yeah, I was really surprised when I came across these laws. Um, so in April of 1961, just to contextualize the time period, in April of 1961, Yuri Gagarin goes into space. And it's regarded as you know, maybe probably the second greatest achievement in Soviet history after the defeat of the Nazis. Uh, it's a time of enormous optimism, an optimism about Soviet achievements in space and technological achievement. Uh, less than one month later, a law is introduced, an ukaz, which declares that uh, theft of state property in particularly large amounts. And that's what lies at the heart of the shadow economy, theft of state property, uh, is to be punishable by death. Also, also uh, a, sec a separate decree uh, uh, states that speculation in foreign currency and then is to be punishable by death in its most egregious forms. And then the third is about bribery, and that's in February of 1962. So between 19, between April 1961 and when Khrushchev is ousted in the fall of 1964, 300 people are sentenced to death for these nonviolent crimes. It's, it's really stunning that these are happening at the same time. Uh, Gagarin in space and uh, these crimes. So Gagarin is the... Uh, the head of the May Day Parade on May 1st, he goes through he goes through Red Square and the generals are there and they make speeches about the imminent triumph of communism. Three days later, you have these uh, seemingly incongruous laws punishing people for property crimes. The laws cause a lot of consternation among foreign socialists and communists who were really dismayed uh, and couldn't understand what, what was happening. 
the way that Khrushchev explained it, and I think that this is, I think that this is how he was thinking, was that the Soviet Union had laid the foundations for communism, and the Soviet Union was getting closer. He says, in ten or twenty years, we will achieve full communism, and he he said this is a temporary measure to uh, to wipe out these bumps in the road. The Soviet people demand it, but in fact, this is a positive step because we're that we're so close that if we can just get rid of these few last bad apples, we'll be, you know, we'll get closer. So. I think it's two sides of the same coin. Yeah, is what I'm yeah, saying. no, but but that's that's something else you point out, and that is this this interesting paradox of the paradox of con Soviet consumerism, mm -hmm. in the sense that at the same time Khrushchev is is basing the good life, the Soviet good life, on you know putting more consumer products in in the economy for people to consume. You know, think, historians are looking at this now, uh, travel, stuff like this, that, that's really creating the benefits of the system. Mm -hmm. um, but at the heart, you say there's a paradox. So what is the paradox that's related to this second economy? I mean, the paradox is, you know, as, as you said, uh, Khrushchev declares by the late 50s that the success of socialism should be measured in part by how well people live. And, and he's not just talking about sort of the bare essentials. He's talking about the ability to have um, technical, you know, appliances, refrigerators, televisions, radios, um, but also nice clothing. It's a correlation with the 50s and 60s in, in the Western world as well. Exactly. And consumption, as we know from the kitchen debate, is a Cold War issue, right? right? Who can consume more and better? Mm -hmm. This matters. Um, so, the, you know, the paradox is that it's the government that's pushing it. It's the government that is telling people that to want stylish clothes, quality clothing, quality you know, household items, rugs, furniture, that is something that a socialist should demand. A socialist person, a citizen of the Soviet Union, should demand uh, consumer goods right. that make sense. Yet the system could not fulfill this demand. And it's the shadow economy that fills that gap. Does the shadow economy, like, can you evaluate its successes in filling that gap? Like, does, I guess the question then is, is given the, the, the ideological push, and creating this, you know, social contract for us with citizens of the Soviet Union, does the shadow economy actually help facilitate that goal? Is, is it even possible to even determine that? I mean, I would say that um, that's very hard to say. Yeah, you know, it's hard to say to what degree the shadow economy can satisfy that gap. I would say it's never satisfied, but I would say that it it does what it can to meet this demand. So the demand never stops. Right. The demand is unending. Uh, so I would say almost everything that the shadow economy can produce, people are buying. <laughs> people are trying to acquire. Do you, did you get, in looking at the archival record, did you get any sense that the authorities who are, of course, you know, given the laws, uh, cognizant of this, this a shadow economy, is there any effort um, within the apparatus to kind of perhaps make a certain peace with it? Or do they only see it as antithetical to yeah. the system? That's a good question. I'd say it's some of both. You know, James Millar wrote this classic article, The Little Deal, in the, in the mid-'80s after he had been in the Soviet Union. And again, based on his experience, I would say, as we mentioned earlier, he noticed that, and everybody who went to the Soviet Union noticed this, that the black marketeers would come up to you in front of the police and the police would do nothing. Um, the, um, there was certainly a sense that, and Millar argues this in his article, that the, the government has some kind, somehow come to a kind of arrangement with the population that we're not going to prosecute these small-scale economic crimes because that's one way in which goods are distributed around. Now, it's, that's, that's something that's impossible to prove. Like, what does that mean? An authoritarian state makes a deal with society. What does that mean? 
how does that really look? On the other hand, they're still arresting people by the hundreds of thousands for speculation and theft of state property. So it's not a, a sort of, you know, let the, sh let, you know, let, the let, let, let the illicit producers do whatever they want to do. That doesn't happen. Um, but so I, I think that there's an understanding that, um, that a lot of services are not going to be provided by the state. And there's a million Soviet jokes about the inability of the, <laughs> the, the state to provide services and jokes about plumbers and electricians and 10-year waiting lists and so on. Um, certainly when I was there in the 80s uh, and you try to flag down a cab, everybody would stop mm -hmm. to offer you, uh, you know, a ride for a few rubles and they'd stop right in front of the police and they never did anything. Ambulances would stop and we're getting a ride from an ambulance or from a dump truck. And it was illegal, but, but nobody was going to prosecute that unless you got on the wrong side of the wrong person. Um, but what they wouldn't, what they did not come to terms with were these big, large scale theft operations, uh, uh, operations in which, uh, massive amounts of state resources were being embezzled absconded with, reappropriated, and then, and then sold back to the public right. for the personal profit of the black marketeers. Before I ask you about one of these big cases, the elite, though, is surely uh, taking advantage of this as well. I mean, do, do, do their consumption habits are they also reliant on this system or the system of the shadow economy or does their privilege give them access that where they can go through official channels? Listen, official channels. Listen the elite has, has access. So you can go into a special store and you can get uh, good chocolate and whiskey and good you know, quality scarves and good underwear and cotton mm -hmm. clothing. You can get a lot of that stuff, but you can't get everything. You can't get genes for your kids and your nephews and your nephew's friends. So they would be dependent on the black market. You can't get Western rock and roll music. So you might be dependent on the black market for that. You can't necessarily get, for example, tutors for your children and things like that. So the elites, uh, I mean, I think that typically what you see is the more that they have, the more that they want. That's not just Russian elites, of course. Uh, so, you know, it's an unending um, you know, it's an unending kind of cycle of demand mm -hmm. that, that is there to be fulfilled. When the, I remember when the VCR is invented, I knew some people, a child of a wealthy family, a wealthy party family in 1983, and what they really wanted was videotapes. Right. You couldn't get the videotapes in the stores, so they had to go to, you know, the black market or to their... Western friends to get that kind of thing. Um, yeah, so um, I can't remember the question. What was the beginning no, you, of you, the question? You, you, you answered okay. it well enough. So let, let's move to one of these these big cases that you talk about in depth and, and, and describe the operation itself, and that is the Kyrgyz affair. There's a, a massive operation of buying and selling and producing goods, distributing goods, and uh, and tech, it's textiles, right? Yes. yes. And and then the prosecution of it. So the Kyrgyz affair is the one of the very largest of the Soviet shadow economy operations in all of Soviet history. It's certainly the biggest in the fifties and the nineteen fifties and nineteen sixties. It's centered in two factories in Frunze, the capital of the Kyrgyz Republic, which is now known as Bishkek. And it it began with um, uh, a Romanian Jewish migrant from Romania who came to the Soviet Union in 1940 or 1941, fleeing the Nazis. And he um, looked around Frunze for years looking for work, but he was sort of on the margins of Soviet society. But finally, he got a job in a warehouse, in a... Um, he, so finally, he got a job in a uh, workshop, a textile workshop in Frunze. He was under tremendous pressure from the local party boss to fulfill his plan for making clothing, but they didn't give him enough cloth. So this is a classic Soviet story. 
So what does he do? He goes out and he finds waste, he finds waste rags. And the Soviet Union, you know, the command economy produced enormous amounts of waste. And this waste is fuel for the shadow economy entrepreneurs. He bought up the waste and he made enough pants and shirts to fulfill the plan. But it turns out that he had more than enough waste. So he made some more pants and shirts. And he made enough so that he could go and sell them. And he made a lot of money. And you know, the light bulb went off. And as it did for tens of thousands of Soviet managers, the light bulb went off and he began a small scale operation where he would take waste cloth and he made some clothing and he sold them out in the local marketplace in some of the key, he had friends in kiosks who sold clothing. Over time, it grew. He expanded it to include his brother and some other relatives. And it became a kind of small, family affair, modest operation. But with time, he came to understand that there was demand in Frunze for not just pants and shirts in small quantities, but for high quality, well-made, fashionable clothing and household goods of various types. So they began, they set up these other workshops, not just a wool, wool workshop, but a rug workshop and a curtains workshop. And they realized that what Soviet, mostly women, shoppers wanted was artificial rayon, artificial silk goods made out of synthetics because they're easier to clean, they're color fast, they're cool in the summer, and they're fi they looked good. And the operation grew exponentially <clears throat> so that by 1960, they had produced, and I'm, I'm making an estimate here based on the information that I have, but they produced probably between 600 and 800,000 items of clothing so this was a this is a company this is a this is an apparel company that's lodged into the planned economy they and when we talked earlier about how they they wove themselves throughout the plan uh, throughout the sort of regular command economy, they obtained material through bribes from the regular suppliers they used the regular machines they when they made their clothing, they sent it to the regular warehouse, bribed the warehouse manager. And you know, I had always thought that basically black market goods were just sold on the street like they were sold to me when I was in the Soviet Union. You just kind of walk down the street, or like the poster that you have of the guy selling thread out of his coat. Uh, or um, you, know, you go to somebody's house and they're like, do you want to buy a Beatles record kind of thing. Uh, but what they did and this was common in many of these larger schemes as they diverted them, they, they sent their goods directly into the retail chain, directly into the stores. So they illegally produced goods were sold together with the legally produced goods. The KGB, which investigated this operation, estimated that two thirds of what was produced in these factories was made illegally and was unreported. Those two-thirds went directly into the retail chain. Ultimately, they were accused of having stolen 30 million rubles worth of state property, which means cloth and clothing. To, to normalize that, the average Soviet worker's income, monthly income in these years, was about 800 rubles. An automobile cost 40,000 rubles. A TV cost about 250 rubles. So this was 30 million rubles divided between about 15 men who ran the operation. Uh, they bribed. <clears throat> Khrushchev knew about this and was personally extremely angry. And what made him angry about this operation, and there were a few others like it, albeit a little bit smaller, what bothered him about this operation was, first of all, that it went on for so long. It went on for seven years. And it's clear that people had to have known about it. Secondly, that party and high party and government officials were being paid off. So local Frunze party chief, people in various ministries, the Ministry of Trade of the Kyrgyz Republic, 
Ministry of Trade, Ministry of Light Industry were being paid off. And also, and this really uh, was made him as angry as knowing that party members were taking bribes, was that law enforcement, so police, prosecutors, and judges, about 20 were taking bribes. Out of this one case, 28 people were sentenced to death. So as far as I can tell, that's the largest number of people sentenced to death in any one case in all of post-Stalin Soviet history. It's possible that there were some war crimes cases, but I've, I've not come across them. Uh, 21 of them were, or 20 of them were executed. Eight had their sentences reduced to 15 years on appeal. Uh, do you, do you have a sense of the geographical scope of this? Like, do you, was it was it how far throughout the the chain of retail and supply? Yeah. How far did it spread out? This is a this is really important, actually. I mean, if if we think about these people's people not just as thieves, mm-hmm. but as entrepreneurs, if we allow that, we're gonna we're going to um, sort of conceptualize this as an as entrepreneurial activity then one of the things that's very important about it is that it has transnational reach. Mm-hmm. They, they get raw materials from four different republics. They sell their goods in four or five different republics, as far away as Leningrad and Novosibirsk. So just to, uh, by way of comparison, it's closer from Frunze to Baghdad or to New Delhi than it is to Leningrad. It's about 70 hours by truck to Leningrad. Um, they, I mean, and fittingly, people from six different Soviet nationalities are executed in this scheme. It's really a multinational operation. Uh, most of the people who work in the factories are Jewish, but most of the people who are taking bribes are Russian, Ukrainians, and Kyrgyz. Was this was their trial public in any way, or was it behind closed doors? How did they how it's did they handle it? It's a combination of both. I can't really tell exactly. I do know that there are three separate trials. The first trial of the, of the people who work in the factories, that's at least partly a public trial, although I found the trial transcript, which was you know, really fortuitous and, and great uh, because very few Soviet trials are actually transcribed. Uh, it's only, it was only transcribed because of a, a bureaucratic peculiarity having to do with the Supreme Court. Um, so they don't say when it's open and when it's closed, but I know that it was partly open anyway. But when they talk about law enforcement, I think they kick everybody out. There are two separate trials of law enforcement, one of prosecutors and judges and lawyers and one of police. Ten different policemen were uh, found to be taking bribes in this case. So it's... Uh, but it is reported on the newspaper every once in a while. Interestingly, the newspaper, Izvestia, only says that four people were executed. And that's because it would have been shocking to the Soviet public to hear that 28 people were given the death penalty in one case. Um, you can see in the um, transcription at the end of the case when the prosecutors make their recommendations on punishments, and then when the judges read the sentences, they're sort of gasping in the audience. And the, of course, a lot of the family members would have been there as well. And the prosecutor says, getting back to something we said earlier, the prosecutor says, I know this may sound, this may seem shocking, it may seem extreme, but we must uh, clear the path on our way to a bright communist future. And um, this was, I think, first of all, the official line. And second of all, I think a lot of idealistic people in the system really believe that. Now, in, in your examination of uh, the shadow economy, well, actually, when you're looking at the outside of these big cases, talk about the, the what, what kind of sources and the difficulties of the sources that you're using. Yeah. And how do you get like to the motivations and voices of the people who are doing these schemes and yeah. are put on trial? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, I was, it takes a lot of time and a lot of effort in the archives to find stuff. The Crime was ta- a taboo topic in the Soviet Union. It doesn't mean it wasn't talked about, but typically you would say that the, the, in the press, 
they would talk about basically it's a bad apple interpretation, right? There's a few people who, in whom the remnants of capitalist mentality remain. Most of the population are good Soviet citizens who have fully embraced the so you know socialist worldview and socialist morality and so on. But there are a few people who, unfortunately, for whatever reason, bad parenting, bad education, bad vaspitania, you know, upbringing, they, they haven't learned their lesson, and here they are, and now they're criminals. So the, that's basically the level of the Soviet you know, press. It's, it's not helpful. Um, one thing that is, inter- is interesting about the Soviet press, though, is they do sometimes detail, not in great detail, but they talk about these schemes in a way that's almost like a roadmap for somebody if they wanted to <laughs> do it themselves. Right? It's like, well, first you bribe the warehouse manager, then you get some material. And sort of funny that way. But um, the press would never talk about party members, or only rarely. They would not talk about high party members, and they would not talk about uh, law enforcement. Um, I mean, there are certain exceptions where the language is couched very generally. And by the end of the 70s, they do begin to talk a little bit more about specific let me ask you, is it different between like local press versus the Fed, the union press? Um, I mean, the, I would say that there's not, there's not difference in terms of content. Everything has to be approved by the local party people. That's really clear from the interviews that I've read. Um, journalists do not have the ability to, to improvise or to, to wing it right. when they're writing about these things. Everything has to be approved. I think that in the local press, for example, in the Ukrainian press or in the Kyrgyz press, you have more colorful language. You have more sort of flamboyant descriptions of the criminals as being vermin or snakes or something like that. Um, so the press is not particularly helpful, uh, although they do will, they will name names, and then sometimes you can go to the archives and look up these people. The, the two types of sources that have been the most useful for me in this are the um, law enforcement sources. So that's the economic police, the prosecutor, the procuracy, the procuratura, the procuracy's office, and the Supreme Court, each of which both studied individual cases and they studied the larger phenomenon. Um, what was really excellent for this Kyrgyz affair is the, um, is the trial transcripts in which people do describe their motives. I mean, these aren't Stalinist trials. They have lawyers, so they can defend themselves. They can deny things. They can talk about why they did things. Um, they can talk about relationships and motivations in a way that, that you don't see. For example, when I worked on bribery trials in the Stalin period, you don't have that kind of language typically. And um, then you have letters of appeal. So letters of appeal are both written by the, the prisoners themselves by their families and by their lawyers. And they will also talk about motivations. They'll talk, they'll try to give exculpatory evidence. And they will just basically give you the perspective of the criminals themselves, which is very rare to find in Soviet archival material. Uh, you often only find it in fictional, fictionalized accounts. So I was really lucky to find all of that. The other thing I have are some interviews with people uh, that were done with um, emigrants to the United States that were done in the 70s, people with firsthand accounts, a firsthand experience with, uh, with shadow economy. That includes journalists, prosecutors, and police, and then perpetrators themselves. I mean, so they're, in, you know, this enormous amount of money that they're kind of hauling in, uh, these, these entrepreneurs that are doing these schemes. What are they doing with the money? Is there any, do you have any sense of, how the money is being used? Yes, so there's, there's two things that you can do with a lot of cash in the Soviet Union in these years. Um, one is that you can buy, you can buy things. So um, you can't just go to the local automobile dealer and buy dealership and buy a, a car, but you can bribe your way to the top of a list, of like a trade union list or something, and you can get cars. So these people had a lot of cars. You also can buy property. In other words, you can buy domes. You can buy a dacha. You don't own the land, but you can, you can lease land and then you can build a dacha. And this is what many of them did as well. So then you can also do things like make sure you have the latest refrigerator, the latest bedroom set, the latest crystal, the latest silverware, 
the nicest TV that you can buy. And you can buy all these things on the black market, even if you can't get them in the stores. But with cash, you can get things. Um, this is an argument about the importance of money in the Soviet period. It really, for a long time, people thought that money was not important, but it is important because of black markets. Is it important in this sense of not only being able to buy things, but being able to buy access? Sure. And yeah, through bribery, you can get yeah. access. So you can get you can get you can buy these vouchers that will get you into a special store or into a berioska. Um, absolutely. Uh, the second thing that you do, and I would have done this too. I mean, if it's 1953 and you suddenly have a lot more money than you need, what would you do with that in 1953 in Kyrgyzstan? Well, you would buy gold, and that's what they do. They buy gold, they buy valuables, and then they bury it in the backyard just in case. And it makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. I mean, the German army was driven out eight years earlier, nine years earlier. I mean, they might be coming back. Who knows? So they, then the gold that they buy is typically um, czarist coins. That are still floating around. Yeah. I mean, again, there's black markets for them. So <laughs> again, back to this accumulation of lots of money, did, did some of these uh, people then go into kind of financial services of sorts, whether it's giving loans, uh, maybe investment in, in some other operation. Mm. Did, have you found any indication of, of a kind of shadow, even banking sector of sorts? I haven't seen that. I have seen people buying workshops. Um, so do you buy, let's say a soap workshop from someone else, um, or you, I think loans isn't the right word. What you have, I think, is a, a it would be better described as kickbacks. So um, you're a bureaucrat in the Ministry of Trade, and you uh, somebody approaches you and says, I want to create an, a workshop, so I will produce you know, a certain amount of uh, tablecloths for the planned economy, but obviously on the side I'm going to be it would be unspoken. And that bureaucrat would say, that's fine. You will give me 10,000 rubles up front and 1,000 rubles a month. So that's more of sort of rent-seeking activity, I would call it, rather than loans or financial transactions. That would be incredibly risky to do that. In some senses, you could say that the people who are selling gold are doing that. That's almost because the, the price of gold fluctuates and the price of the coins therefore fluctuates. And I guess people could be kind of playing the market or playing the spreads or that's a kind of primitive type of financial operation. But I haven't seen banks in this period at all. What about labor? What about the, the use of labor in these schemes? Are, are, is the labor, the pool of labor that's being used, is it just basically exploiting the labor of the official economy, or is there also a black market of labor going on for this? It's a little bit of both, but basically it's exploiting the labor in the factory. So in the Kyrgyz affair, for example, they paid people, um, uh, the way they describe it in, the, in their testimony is that they found the most productive labor, the most reliable people, let's say 10 people out of 100 on a, in a workshop floor, and they... Um, they would ask them to do extra work and they would pay them a couple hundred rubles extra a month. So if the average salary, say, of a, of a line worker was 700 rubles, then they might get 900 or 1,000 rubles and they would pay them in cash. It wouldn't go through the normal salary system. They would pay them in cash and no regular workers were prosecuted in this affair. In other words, they could not prove or didn't try to prove that they knew about it. They were, they were, uh, they were considered to be just sort of <laughs> you know, innocent victims in this whole thing. I don't know how innocent they were. I don't know how innocent they were. What they said is that, well, they gave, he gave us cash at the end of the month, and he told us that that was because if they paid us over, and if they paid us overtime through the regular salary thing, then it would reduce the overall salary pool. Um, I think it was a don't ask, don't tell kind of situation. Yeah, sure. Why ask? You're yeah. going to give me. Sure, I'll work three hundred. You know, I'll work extra for three hundred rubles, but I'm not going to ask why. I would. I wouldn't have asked. I think people hear things. 
But uh, just to, there, there were actually black markets in labor as well. Yeah. For example, the Shabashniki. The Shabashniki were construction workers who would go out into the countryside and who would, who would for example, Kalhozi, collective farms, would hire them to build a school or some kind of administrative building. And if you went through the regular channels, it would take 10 years to build a school. But if you paid in cash to these construction crews, you could have it done. It would cost three times as much, but you could have it done right away. Put this in, in, in you know, you're, we're mostly talking about the, the 60s Khrushchev period. Um, what about, do you, do you know anything about the, these types of schemes before in the Stalin period? And then what about into the 1970s and into the early 80s? Yeah, I think that yeah, I think. Um, my sense from the sources that I read, most people who were participating in these things believe that things changed after Stalin died. So there's less fear. There's also less emphasis economically on, on uh, sort of purely on reconstruction after the war, on heavy industry as much. There's a new, there's a change in the, um, the vocabulary of socialist consumerism. So this opens up a lot of space for second economy activities. And I agree with your, and I, I, I share or used to share your sense that really it was under Brezhnev that this type of thing really prospered and blossomed. But I think that the pattern is set, the model is set beginning in the late 1950s. And of course, there's been shadow economy in the Soviet Union since day one, since October 1917. Once you start outlawing markets, then of course there will be, once you start law, outlawing any market for anything, Drugs in the United States, guns, illegal labor, right, which is probably the biggest black market in the United States is the labor market. Then you will have black markets. Um, but um, um, the the ability and the reach of the people grows after, I would say, beginning in the late 1950s, and this is. It's hard to quantify, it's hard to demonstrate exactly, but this is what the law enforcement sources are saying as well. It's really in the late 50s when you, there's this burst of arrests, there's this burst of cases that come to the attention of the police and of the Khrushchev and the party leadership. Um, and that's why the Ukaz happens in 1961 and 1962. To me, this is really significant. To me, that is a sign that something big has changed to mandate the death penalty for, for crimes that, after all, were not so, they weren't unheard of, but they were much larger and seemed much more threatening. They're also bringing in more party members and law enforcement, it seems, which are two things that horrified Khrushchev. Um, and then in terms of later, I, I mean, my research to this point has been focused mostly on the 60s and seven, in the, the 60s, really, but I, judging by the interviews that I've read, you know, the model is set. The model is set. Um, interwoven production, distribution, retail. These are the most profitable schemes. Uh, consumer goods and food. That's the other thing. Household items. So people making soap, people making hand towels, people selling Georgian wine and fruit. And there's a lot of geographical variation as well. This is also the time when they start talking about drug addiction in the Russian Republic. And Kyrgyzia is one of the major uh, opium-producing regions. But that continues through the 70s as well. So I think that... Um, what you see in the 70s is more toleration for the small stuff. And I think more and more of this type of operation that we see in the late 50s, early 60s. These people who become oligarchic figures in the late 80s and into the 90s, do you see them as part of the same kind of entrepreneurial trajectory? And, and another kind of standard argument is, 
you know, people will look at this entrepreneurial activity and just kind of say, well, it, this is what brought the Soviet Union down, right? This is one of the, the, the internal contradictions that broke the system. Mm -hmm. So where do, you, uh, where do you fall on this? To me, it's a big question mark. I think that there are, there's a lot of sort of facile, simple, like, oh, these are like, you just pull them ahead 25 years and they're oligarchs. And it's very tempting to say that and people try to get me to say that, but I don't know if they really are. You know, the oligarchs were all very well placed in the party structure, most of them. They're insiders who stole from inside. Berezovsky basically, you know, inherits the automobile industry. Uh, inherits, not the right word. He steals the automobile industry. And, but he was really well placed to do that. The big oligarchs that I know of are you know, really well connected. They're not coming from the bottom like that. I do think that there are, you know, there are habits and skills that are learned that, you know, perestroika is a key transitional period. So many of these small-scale operations are legalized in perestroika. Um, um, so, so I remember going to like restaurants that had been underground restaurants and then they were legal, you know? I mean, basically Gorbachev legalizes a lot of the black market and then, and then Yeltsin legalizes all of the black market. Um, but that doesn't mean that, I don't know, because the genealogy is not clear to me, and you'd have to do a, like a really in-depth study of oligarchs' backgrounds, which is not really part of this project. I would encourage other people to do it, and I wish I had some great summary, like, mm, yes, it's all exactly the same, but I'm not sure. And, and finally, given what you're looking at in terms of the shadow economy, how do you understand Soviet society and and Soviet socialism through these practices? How do you, what is your, your you know, what is your takeaway from all of this in the I larger mean, picture? A big question, uh, of course. And um, I mean, the first thing I would say is that, uh, I mean, one sort of stereotype about Soviet black marketeers uh, and this is uh, this is encapsulated best in the title of a book that came out in 1982 by an emigre. It's called uh, uh, it's called Soviet Union: The Corrupt Society, and then something about the secrets of underground capitalism. And that's a stereotype that black marketeers were capitalists, very consciously capitalists, and they were therefore anti-Soviet and anti-socialist, and they thought of themselves as kind of you know, resistors in a way. Mm -hmm. And that's not the case. I don't see any example of anyone who was involved in any of these things consciously trying to undermine socialism, trying to, you know, turn the Soviet Union into a capitalist country. That, that, that doesn't fly. I just don't see it in the sources whatsoever. I think most of them um, probably believed in the system wholeheartedly. They just needed or wanted to make extra money for either to survive or to live better. Um, what, I mean, another big conclusion I bring, uh, I take away from this study is about the, the sort of the myth of stagnation. And stagnation is not a useful term, I think, to describe Soviet society in this period. Um, I know I used to have stagnation in the title of my lecture on the 1970s and 80s, and I've, I've dropped that now. Uh, I think that this is a testament to, to social dynamism, to creativity, despite uh, uh, a state that was highly restrictive, that was ossified in many ways, that was politically um, deadened in many ways. But you have these pockets of, of, of activity, of... Uh, social dynamism that is fascinating for me to read about. I never really would have expected to to see this degree, this level of sophistication, this geographic reach, the scope, the ambition of many of these large scale large scale cases. I mean, I knew from my own experience and just from the literature, the Russian literature itself, about the about the the kind of 
everyday um, people who dabbled in the illegal economy in small ways. But these larger cases were, I knew about them vaguely, but once I was able to read very deeply, I, I come away very impressed uh, with a different type of Soviet society in this period of so-called stagnation than I had imagined. That was James Heitzen, a professor of modern Russian history and director of the Holly Bush Institute at Rowan University. He's the author of two books, Inventing a Soviet Countryside, State Power and the Transformation of Rural Russia, 1917 to 1929, and The Art of the Bribe, Corruption under Stalin, 1943 to 1953. His new project is a social history of underground entrepreneurs and black markets in the Soviet Union from the 1950s to the 1980s. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. Thank you to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblestnesses for your continued patronage. And you can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye. Call. Offshore banking business